Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. As I mentioned before, we're working through the book of Esther in the Old Testament. I'm going to read just a few verses for you. Ben's going to be covering a couple of chapters this morning, but we're just going to give you a bit of a taster in one of the stories or one of the things that happens in that. Esther chapter 2, reading from verse 21. During the time, uh, during the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported it to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. All this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. Let's pray first and then we'll hook into this chapter. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gift um, that we have right now to be together in the same room. Thank you for your kindness, Lord, and your mercy. Thank you that you are the living God who speaks to us and who encourages us and challenges us and comforts us. Father, we ask now you'd move among us and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The 2021 census has created a fair bit of attention in the last month or so. If you missed it, the results have come in about what Australians think and what's going on in their homes and what's going on in their hearts. And lots of interesting stuff came out of the census. But of particular interest was that to do with Christianity and religion. If you didn't see it, officially, Australia is no longer primarily a Christian nation. In 2021, 42% of people, only 42% of people, ticked the Christianity box. This is down from 2016, which was 52%, and down from 2011, which was 62%. Which means that now for us, here in Australia, as a nation, we are no longer primarily a Christian nation. Now, there's lots to be said about this. There's lots around this of commentary and stuff like that. Like, uh, I think there's some encouraging stuff out of this, like cultural Christianity is dying. You know, people who say they're Christians but uh, don't live like that, they're finally not ticking the box. Uh, This also helps us see that there is a great mission opportunity here in our nation. It's not just missionaries that go overseas. We've got a mission opportunity where we are. Around the same time, there was another survey that came out that said one in three people would come to church if invited by friends or family, which I just find in our current state amazing. But when you do see the census data, it it raises some questions. And I think one of the biggest questions that it raises is where is God in the middle of all this? Where is God in our nation? If Christianity is decreasing, what is God doing? Where is God in a nation that's going further and further away from Him? What is God doing in our nation? 
Well, today we're going to look at this. As we go through the journey of Esther 1 and 2, and the reason we're looking at this particular question is because Esther is a story of how God works in a nation far from God. We found out last week that we are in the Persian Empire in the ancient world, and they don't believe in the God of the Bible. And so we're going to reflect on this. We're going to look at how God worked in the past and then what that means for us today. And we're going to do this through Esther chapter 1 and 2, as Ross mentioned before. So if you've got your Bibles there, have them open, or we'll go on the screen as well, but it's going to be a bit of a journey for our tech guys to stay up with me today. So the best bet is have it open in your Bible. We're picking it up in chapter 1, verse 1, where we see it reads this. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes, the Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa, and in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. The military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, the nobles of the provinces were present. For a full 180 days or six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and, uh, and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for everyone, from, for all people, from the greatest to the least in the citadel of Susa. Where is God in a nation far from God? Well, this is where we find ourselves in that nation. They are a kingdom far from God, and they have a king far from God. And this is who we meet first and foremost in the story of Esther. We meet King Xerxes. He's the leader of the world superpower of the day. Uh, Persia have pretty much half the population in the, the world superpower, and he's the king of that superpower. He's the strongest guy in the world, the most powerful, the most famous, but you could also argue he's the guy who loves a party more than anyone else in the world. And that's because we read as it begins, he throws a six-month party for his officials. You saw that there, a six-month party for his officials. And then when that ends, he decides to go again for a seven-day party. Right, right after the six-month party, a seven-day party for everyone. But it's not just a seven-day party, is it? It's a seven-day bender. That's what it is. They drink and they drink and they drink at this party. And we see this in verse seven. Everyone has their own goblet of gold. I love that, uh, where the wine is flowing. And then verse 8, have a look at that. Each, uh, by the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. Uh, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man as he wished. Seven-day party where the aim is drink as much as you possibly can. In fact, there's wine stewards, you know, not just normal stewards, but wine stewards, whose one job is to make sure your wine glass is full. Okay, so here we are in a nation far from God with a king far from God, and they're drinking as much as they possibly can in seven days. Surely nothing's going to go wrong, right? Surely that's a good idea. Except, of course, we read something goes wrong. And it's here that we meet Queen Vashti. In verse 9, we see she's throwing a banquet for the women, so they're not going to miss out either. But then in verse 10, we, we see that the king is pretty drunk off his face on the seventh day. And he decides that he's going to come up with a pretty good idea to get the queen to come out wearing her royal crown and show her off to the people around. He's objectifying his wife here. Now, uh, whether she's just wearing the royal crown or whether she's clothed as well doesn't really matter Whichever way you look at it, it's pretty grim. It's not good. He's a drunk guy objectifying his wife. And so he says, you know, bring Vashti out. To, let's show her off to the other guys in the place. Now, how's Queen Vashti going to respond? 
How's she going to respond? Well, good for Vashti. She stands up to the king. We read this in verse 12. The, the attendants go to get her and then come out and say, Vashti refused to come out. And then the king becomes furious and burned with anger. Okay, so on the one hand, good for Vashti, right? You read that and you go, well, good on her. She's got the stones to stand up to King Xerxes, a blind, drunk king, far from God, who's trying to show her off to the other guys. So on the one hand, good for Vashti. But on the other hand, what this is exposing here is what King Xerxes is like. You know, whichever way you look at it, you see here a blind, drunk king, far from God, objectifying his wife, not treating her with the dignity that she deserves, trying to get her to show off. And then when she refuses, he's angry about that. You know, it, it's, it's pretty wild what we're seeing here. And there is some irony in this moment. You know, this is the leader of the world superpower, the guy who controls everything. He controls, you know, the whole world essentially, but he can't control his liquor. He can't control his household. He definitely can't control his wife. So there's irony involved in what's happening here. But whichever way you look at it, what you see is an evil man far from God doing whatever he wants. Now, if you take a step out of the detail in this moment, this does show us something about how men are not supposed to act, right? Whichever way you look at this, when you look into King Xerxes, you can see that this is not how it's supposed to be. Drunk men are not meant to objectify their wives and then get angry when they don't get what they want. Whichever way you look at it, there's, there's a kind of a lesson for us here as we reflect on our lives. That's not what it's meant to be like. In fact, whenever people do act like that, they're not acting in line with God, but they're acting like someone far from God. This is what King Xerxes does. You know, th this is the type of king that he is, far from God, doing whatever he wants, objectifying his wife, furious and angry. And so what does he do? The, the leader of the world superpower, well, he decides to get rid of Vashti. That's what happens out of this. In fact, he, he invites some people in to speak into this moment. So he gets some people in verse 13. He gets his wise men together to come up with a plan. What should he do about Queen Vashti? In verse 17, we see that they respond and say, The queen's conduct will become known to all the women, so they will despise their husbands. Okay, we see then verse 20, they send an edict out to proclaim to the whole vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. And then verse 22, he, he likes this idea, sends it out to everyone, each, each province in its own script and says to each people in their own language, proclaiming that every man should be ruler over his own household. Now, that's a, it is a little bit strange, the steps here that take place. But this blind, drunk King Xerxes likes the idea to get rid of Vashti and send an edict out to everyone saying, Hey, nation, just remember, women submit to your husbands and husbands rule over your wives. It's a little bit weird, right? It is a little bit strange as you look in on that. Because you kind of think the steps that took place, you know, it was King Xerxes objectifying his wife. There's no way out of that should have been this edict, but this is what this nation is. You know, they're far from God. They're doing whatever they want. And, and you've got the leaders at the top doing whatever they want and, and making sure that they can keep ruling in the way that they want. It's, it's evil. It's not good. It's not right. And, and you get to the end of chapter 1, and the question we had at the start is still there. It, it, it's still, where is God in the middle of this? Right? I mean, the, they're doing whatever they want. Why isn't God doing something a little bit more obvious in this moment? But you see, if that's our question at the end of chapter 1, well, it's amplified as we go into chapter 2. You know, chapter 1 leaves us feeling a little bit frustrated, but that just continues in chapter 2 because chapter 2 is like season 2. 
and it's season two of the reality TV show. See, reality one, uh, reality TV show chapter one, it feels like season one. You know, if you've ever watched any reality, which, you know, you, you know you probably have, your guilty pleasure maybe is, is, is reality. Season one is always the tamer season, if you know this. Season two, they ramp it up a little bit. You know, because they've got to get the people who watched back to watch again in season two. And season two is always a little bit more crazier than, than season one, which is what is happening in Esther. So season two, season one, episode one, chapter one is wild, but chapter two is even more wild. And we see this when we get into chapter two. So let's have a look. King Xerxes wakes up in chapter two from his hangover, and he remembers Vashti and what he'd done. It's almost like he, he's lonely at this point. He remembers the drunken decisions that he made and the fact that he put it into legislation and made it a decree and he feels a little bit lonely. And so in verse 2, a king's attendant says, all right, let's come up with a beauty contest. He says this, let's, let, let a search be made for the beautiful young virgins for the king. Okay, so this is very much welcome to the bachelor Persian style. This is what's going on here. And you can almost hear Osh's voice in the background, the presenter of The Bachelor. You know, one prince charming looking for love. 30 young virgins looking for their prince charming, seeking out to try and find, you know, someone they can fall in love with or whatever. And, 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 and you've got this picture of, you know, the, the music's in the background. And then, and then, you know, if Osh is presenting, you know, as, he, as is his want, what happens is, well, we meet our first girl, and the first girl is Esther. And this is what we see in verse 5. And, and when you meet the first girl in these stories, what do they do? They always take you to the backstory. And this is what we see, the backstory. You know, you can picture Esther sitting on the couch telling her backstory. Right? The music's in the background, and, and immediately you can see this, this girl's story is pulling at your heartstrings because she begins to tell her journey of how she got to this point. And she shares how, you know, at some point in her life, her mother and father passed away. I, I can almost see her holding a picture of, you know, their frame, holding their picture, and the, the music's in the background. You feel for Esther, but then the music changes. And then the, the camera pans to Mordecai, and she says, but Mordecai, he's the, he's the guy, her cousin. She says, he took me into his home. He looked after me as if, you know, as a dad would look after their own daughter. And so you, you feel for Esther. You see she's young, she's good-looking, she's beautiful, and this is the girl that you want to win, right? You know, there's always one that you want to win, and, and this is the girl you want to win the beauty contest. But you see, if our minds are with The Bachelor, well, this is where it ends because there's no limo that she's going to get out of, and it's no Prince Charming. Let's be real. The King Xerxes is probably still drinking at this point. He's not really the Prince Charming that everyone wants to end up with. And so what happens? Well, we find out about the beauty contest. And this is why we've got to get away from The Bachelor. Because even if you have, you know, opinions on how bad The Bachelor is, well, their beauty contest in Persia is so much more worse. So, so we get this from verse 12. We see this in, in verse 12. Uh, there's a section telling us about the beauty contest. And essentially the beauty contest is this. The women go in and they have 12 months of treatment. Six months of oils and stuff and then six months of cosmetics. Now... You might be looking at this and thinking that sounds good. Okay, how good? Like 12 months of beauty treatments? Who wouldn't like that? But let's just remember this is ancient world beauty treatments. I mean, I don't know ancient world beauty treatments, but I, I guarantee they weren't tested. And I kind of think of like maybe they were like to get their lips bigger, they were licking poisonous frogs and stuff like that. I don't, I don't know. Maybe that would be how they did it in the ancient world. 
I don't think we have any historical records of that, but I'm just trying to think, you know, they weren't testing it, how would they know? But, but So they go into the 12 months of ancient world beauty treatments, and then what happens is, one by one, they go into the king. They sleep with the king, and then the next morning, if the king likes her, she becomes queen, but, but if he doesn't, she goes to the harem with the concubines. Now, a harem is basically a house full of concubines, and a concubine is basically a live-in prostitute. Someone you can call in at any time you want to sleep with. That's a pretty bad beauty contest. You know, you win, you're with the King Xerxes, the guy who's still drinking. You lose, and this is your result. So then we remember Esther, and we kind of think, well, this is the girl we wanted to win, but now we look at the beauty contest and we think, well, well, what do we want for her? I mean, do we want her to win? Do we want her to be married to King Xerxes? Do we want her to lose and go to the harem with the rest of the concubines? What do we want for Queen Esther? But you see, if this is our opinion, looking in on this from the 21st century, the reality is verse 17 doesn't hold that tension for us. The text doesn't hold that tension. Because what we see is... She wins favor. She goes in in verse 17. She wins favor from the king, and, and the king likes her, makes her queen, and then what does he do? Of course, he throws her a banquet in verse 18. He calls it Esther's banquet, right? Our king likes to party. That, that much is clear. In fact, just to take stock of the parties to chapters ratio, it's three to two. That's the, re- that's the ratio that the king's working out here. We'll see by the end of Esther how many parties there are, but, but I think it's a lot. Um, and, and that's because the king likes to party. So he makes Queen Esther the queen. That, I guess, is good news. And then we read the end of the chapter finishes with the Bible reading we had read out for us before where Mordecai finds out the assassination plot. So he just happens to be in, sitting in the king's quarters, in the king's gate. He overhears some guys that want to kill the, uh, to kill the king. He hears this, tells Esther. She reports it to the king. They test it out. They find out it's to be true. And then they write it down in the, the book of the annals, which is the historical record of what happened each day. And then our chapter ends. That's it. Okay, it's a, it's a pretty wild season. Season two, isn't it? And nothing really happens with it. You know, you just, you sort of see Esther made queen just like that. And then Mordecai hears that and tells queen and that's it, that, that sounds pretty good. But it just ends. And it feels a bit weird and, and strange how it ends. In fact, that question we had at the start is still there, isn't it? It's amplified in, in chapter 2 because you're still asking, well, where is God in the middle of all this? You know, how could God just allow all of this to unfold and all of this to happen? Why doesn't he do something about this king who's far from God? Why, is he, why isn't he acting stronger in the middle of all of this? These questions, you know, if, if, particularly if you're here today and you haven't read the book of Esther lately, you know, if you're not familiar with what comes, if, if you're feeling like that, if you feel this is a weird, strange couple of chapters, frustrated with the lack of God in it, I think that feeling is the right feeling to have. And so we want to ask the question, where is God in this? But see, to answer this question, we've got to take a step back from the detail. Okay, we've got to take a step back from the details of chapter 1 and 2 and see the book as a whole. And, and one of the reasons for this is because this is what Israel did. 
Israel would uh, read this book every year as a celebration. This was, you know, like their Christmas celebration. They'd gather together, they'd give each other presents, and then they'd all gather as a nation, and they'd read the book of Esther from beginning to end. They'd see the whole story. So Israel are not stopping at chapter 2, right? That, that, is, that is true. So for us in this moment, when we're asking where is God, we need to see the picture as a whole. We need to remember what unfolds in this book because we need the gift of hindsight to see what God is doing in chapter 1 and 2. We need to remember what, is, what we're going to see in this series, what's going to unfold. We need to remember that uh, further ahead in these chapters, Israel will face certain death. There's a moment where the nation as a whole, they have a, they have a date, they have a day where they're all going to be wiped out. And for God to fix that problem, they need someone who's close to the king, who finds favor in the king's eyes. Mordecai, too, is going to face certain problems as the chapters unfold. There's a moment for Mordecai where he's definitely going to die. He's facing certain death. You know, uh, we're going to meet someone who wants to impale him on a big spike. We need him to to do what happened in chapter 2 for it to be recorded down so that then he gets lifted up to the second position in the kingdom. And so when you begin to see the story as a whole, what you begin to see is that everything that happened in chapters 1 and 2 needed to happen for the future. Which means this, the way that God is working in chapter 1 and 2 might not be obvious. He's working in more hidden ways, but he's not absent. In fact, the way that he's working in the middle of chapter 1 and 2 is through what we would call providence. Now, providence is a really important word, and it's a really beautiful idea. And what providence means is not just, you know, a church plant in Sunnybank, although that might be what you think of when you think of providence. What providence means is God's purposeful sovereignty. Okay, purposeful sovereignty. So that means God works in big and small things, with purposeful intent. So he's in control of everything and he's working through everything for the good of his people. That's what Romans 8 will tell us later on in the Bible. So, so God's providence is at work in chapters 1 and 2. Because so many things just so happened. You know, did you notice that? Like King Xerxes just so happened to be blind drunk, to think that the idea of bringing Vashti out was a good idea. It just so happened that Queen Vashti refused to come out. It just so happened that the advice that he got was to get rid of Queen Vashti. It just so happened he listened to that advice. And then it just so happened that he woke up lonely. It just so happened that when he woke up lonely, that his attendant was there and said, let's come up with this random beauty contest. And it just so happened that Esther was entered into that. It just so happened that Esther found favor in the king's eyes and was made queen. And it just so happened that Mordecai was sitting at the gate. It just so happened that the people trying to kill the king at the gate spoke loud enough so that Mordecai could hear it and it just so happened that Esther was in a position where he could tell that to her and then it get recorded down. Every single thing just so happened but when you see all of it and you take a step back from the details you realize that nothing happened by chance. Nothing big, nothing small, nothing good, nothing bad. It all happened under God's providence, His sovereignty, His purposeful sovereignty in the big and the small God was working. He may have been hidden but He wasn't absent. He was working in amazing ways to solve a problem they didn't even realize existed yet. But this is how God is working in the book of Esther. You see, Esther chapter 1 and 2 might not have a verse that you'd put on your wall. It might not be on your coffee cup. In fact, if it did, your family would probably think you're a little bit weird. But Esther 1 and 2 gives us this beautiful picture of providence. 
Esther is all about providence. And we're going to see this as we go through the book of Esther. But the reality is the whole Bible helps us see God's providence. It helps us see how God works in this world. From beginning to end, we see God working over everything big and small with purposeful intent. And you see this in Esther, but we also see this with Jesus. You see, when Jesus rocks up, he is someone who understood providence. He understood that his father was working with purposeful intent over everything. And there's this beautiful moment with Jesus in John chapter 19 where we see him understanding providence. So in John chapter 18, Jesus is, addre- is arrested. And he gets arrested by the, the chief priests and the leaders for his claims to be God. But then chapter 19 rolls around, and at the beginning of chapter 19, he's beaten and he's flogged, and he has this crown of thorns crushed into Jesus' skull. And there's a moment that, like, you're sitting there, and if you read that section, you look at it, and you kind of go, where's God in that? How could God the Father allow this to happen to the Son? You know, why isn't he stopping this? But then we we read Jesus coming before Pilate. And this is what unfolds from verse 6. It says this, As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify him, crucify him. But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he, uh, he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. And he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have the power to either free you or to crucify you? Now let's just stop there and think about that. Do you see what Pilate's saying? He's saying to Jesus, bro, just speak to me because I can let you go. I've got the power to free you or I've got the power to kill you. That's my position in this moment. I can do this. I've got the power to do this. How is Jesus going to respond to this? Well, he responds as someone who understands providence. And he says this in verse 11, Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. You see what Jesus is saying to Pilate? Pilate's saying, I'm in control. Jesus says, you got nothing except that which the living God gave you. And so what happens is you get this back and forth, and then in verse 16, Pilate hands Jesus over to be crucified, but it wasn't by accident. He didn't die by chance. No, he died with a purpose. Jesus died to bring life, to fix a problem that people didn't even know existed, to bring life to those who should face death. Jesus understood providence, and it's so good that he understood providence. The cross was not an accident. It happened for a very reason to bring us life. You see, providence is all throughout the book of Esther. It's all throughout the book of the Bible. We see it in Jesus as well. But as we gather together this morning, we want to think about what it means for us as well. You pick up any pages of the Bible, it's there. But what does providence mean for us? As we gather, what difference would it make for us as we think about this? Well, well, I think if we grasp providence, it will change us. And it will vastly change the impact we have on the people around us. Okay, so let's think about it. we got three things today to think about providence, what providence means for us. So the first thing providence means for us is providence helps us understand God's presence. And it helps us understand God's presence because the way that God works might appear hidden, but He's not absent. He is working in 
every single thing that happens, big or small, good or bad, with purposeful intent for the good of those who love him. Now, the reality is you might never see the purposes. That's true. For some of us, we, we might look back in our past. We, ne- we never see those purposes. But God is in the middle of it, working through it, even if we don't see the purposes of God. And this was true two and a half thousand years ago in Persia. This is true 2,000 years ago with Jesus, and it's true today. Even if it feels like God is not present in our nation, even if the noise is getting louder, the reality is God is still working here. We have to remember that. We have to understand God's providence. It helps us understand God's presence. He's with us, and He's working. Okay, that's the first one. The second one is providence helps us understand our purpose. It gives us purpose. And the reason is, if we understand this, we begin to understand that everything happens for a purpose. Everything happens for a reason. God is purposefully working over all things big or small. Which means even the frustrations and the interruptions of our life, God is working in the middle of that. Now again, sometimes in our life, we'll never see the purposes. But occasionally we do. And many of us sitting here this morning would be able to look back on our life and through the gift of hindsight see how God was at work in providence, in good and bad things. So, you know, I I could talk to you about so many different ways for me that this has played out. Like, you know, I think about me becoming, how I became a Christian or even how I met my wife, Elizabeth, or how we came to Southside. God was working all of that. But the example that comes to my mind the most was uh, when we think about the birth of our daughter, Poppy. So uh, Elizabeth was really sick at the end of um, her pregnancy and uh, she, w- she got admitted to hospital on a Tuesday morning and she had preeclampsia, if you know what that means, and, and basically she was really, really sick. And she was in hospital from Tuesday to Friday and Poppy was premature and she was, she was really little and they wanted to keep her in there as long as they could. But uh, what happened on the Friday is things looked all right. And so uh, they said, look, things don't seem to be getting any worse. So they let us go home on the Friday morning. And so we went home thinking, cool, well, we won't be back there for a couple of weeks. But Friday night we had dinner and then we were watching a movie and something was a bit off. And Elizabeth felt um, anxious. She only felt poppy kick a couple of times, which is unusual at night for her. And, and we decided we'd just call the hospital. You know, what, you know, there's no harm in calling the hospital. So we, we called the hospital and the nurse picked up and she asked me a bunch of questions. And the nurse said this. This was actually her words. She said, look, I'm, I'm not actually worried about this. But it just happens to be a pretty quiet day at the hospital. There's no one else in here. So you may as well come in. We'll come in. We'll check you out for 15 minutes and then you can go home. Now, it was 9.30 at night. So we were a little bit annoyed about this. But we decided to go in. And when we went in, they did a scan and they pretty quickly realized that they needed to get Poppy out, that she needed to get out in the next 24 hours. And so the next day, Elizabeth went through an emergency Caesar and, and, and Poppy came out and she was safe and, and healthy, a little bit small. Um, and the doctor, I remember being in special care for a while and the doctor came in and, you know, as far as I know, he's not a Christian, but he said... It was a miracle that we got her out when she did because she wouldn't have made it till Monday. This is Saturday. Now, you look back at that 
and every single moment like we didn't understand what what we were going through or what god was doing in that but you look back and you see god's providence you see his fingerprints over it all you see how he was working in the good and the bad and, and now we can look back and see that with clarity now many of us today would have the story of how god's worked in our past we'd have moments like that that we'd be able to reflect on how god worked in our past some of us we haven't seen the purposes yet we may never see the purposes yet not in this life but but for many of us we do as we look back but you see as we understand providence it's not just meant to lead us to praise it's meant to understand help us understand our purpose and the purpose in the big and the small moments of life. You see, if God is working in everything, then what it means is that everything that happens has a purpose. So let's think about this for a moment, because what would it change for you if you actually grasped this truth? Right? So think about it. Like, what about the people you sit next to? You know, you're sitting next to someone here this morning, but you sit next to people on the bus, you sit next to people at work, you sit next to people at school. What if the people you sat next to, that wasn't an accident? You know, they just happened to take that seat, but what if it wasn't an accident? Or what about the people in your life? You know, you just happened to get put into that soccer team. You just happened to be put in that class. You just happened to be in that workstation. You just happened to see that person every day. You just happened to have your neighbors. What if that wasn't an accident? Or think about the disruptions in our life, the interruptions in our life, the things that drive us crazy. You know, you think about, you think about your kids waking up. You know, they just happen to wake up not once, but eight times in that night. Or you think about the other things that frustrate you. You know, we've all got things that just frustrate us. What about the traffic? That car that cut you off. The traffic that means you're going to run late. But what if those interruptions weren't an accident? They just happened to happen. But what if it wasn't an accident? What about the promotion you received or the demotion you received or the change in work or income that frustrated you because you don't know what the future holds but what if that wasn't an accident do you see if we could grasp providence it changes things it changes things dramatically for us and the impact on those around us because it means then that the people we sit next to we're not just thinking this is an accident we're thinking god was working in this and the person you sat next to on the bus might be a person that God is seeking and saving. Or the person you sat next to this morning was a person that needs you to listen to them and that are carrying a burden that they need their church family to support. The person in your work isn't just an accident. That didn't just happen. Maybe God was moving in that moment. The people in your life, the person you see every day, that that wasn't an accident. You know, you, you say hi, you're friendly enough, but what if God is inviting you to a deeper conversation? What if your neighbors, God is inviting you to show hospitality to them and the love of Christ? Do you see how this changes the way we think about the people around us? Or what about our interruptions? You know, we often think our interruptions are stopping us from what God wants, but what if that is what God wants? Right, when your kid wakes up in the middle of the night, for the eighth time, for the 19th month in a row. What if that was God inviting you to a deeper dependence on Him? What if God was inviting you to practice the patience you've been praying for? Or what if that moment right there 
was actually God helping you sow seeds in that child's life of love in the hard moments, of unconditional love that's going to set you up for when they're teenagers and they need to know that their parents love them. Do you see it changes how we see those moments? What if the traffic, the, the, the person that cuts you off, what if that wasn't an accident but God was inviting you to practice self-control? The self-control you've been seeking, the fruit you want to have in your life. What if that moment right there is God saying, all right, let's practice this. You see how it changes things when we understand providence? Now, it's not easy. You know, this week, there was a moment for me, where, like we were driving, we got stuck in traffic, Poppy was crying in the back, and it was, I could feel my heart boiling over, and I said to Elizabeth, God is teaching me what I'm about to preach on, and I love this. And I could breathe, and it was hard, and I hated it, and I didn't enjoy any of it. But the change in mindset helped me not get angry in that moment, helped me not snap in that moment, helped me be gracious to the people in my car in that moment. You see, providence changes things for us. It gives us purpose in big and small moments in our life. This week, as we move out of this room, well, it starts not even as we move it. It starts as soon as the service finishes. What would change if you understood providence? It gives us purpose. So number one, it gives us, helps us understand God's presence. Number two, it gives us a purpose. Number three, it leads us to peace. You see, Jesus didn't just teach or understand providence. He also taught providence. And he said this in Luke chapter 12, verse 22. Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, or as we would call them today, the crows. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? When we understand providence, it leads us to peace. Jesus helps us see how we can have this. He says, don't worry, but he, he doesn't just say don't worry. He tells you why not to worry. And it's because you're not in control, but the God of the universe is in control. The God who feeds the crows, sometimes out of your bins cares for you more than the crows and so if God cares for you and feeds them how much more is he going to look after you now this is so helpful because we live in a world of anxiety right we do many of us this morning face anxiety all the time um, if you know my story you know that I've struggled with anxiety and there's kind of two types of anxiety there's an anxiety that we need to see a psychologist about and I have seen a psychologist about this a number of times, and it's been some of the best decisions I've made to go and talk to and seek help for that anxiety. You know, if, if this is you this morning with an anxiety over here, and you need to seek someone's help about that, there's no shame in that. You go to a doctor to help an infection or fix a broken bone, and there's no shame in that. This is just finding help for the anxiety we live with, okay? So there's, a, there's an anxiety over here we need help with. But there's an, another anxiety that we tolerate. And it takes the form of worry. And we worry about our health. We worry about our future. We worry about the things we know and the things that we don't know. And Jesus speaks into this worry and he says, he says, don't worry. But again, he's not just saying don't worry. He's saying don't worry because you're not in control. You see, worry often comes from the fact that I think that I'm in control. 
And so then I worry about the things that I can control, my work, my finances, my health, my family, my future. But Jesus says to this, he says, don't worry because you're not in control, but there is a God who's in control and he cares for those crows and he cares so much more for you. And so for many of us today, we live with a worry that we've got to tolerate, but the solution to your worry is not a self-help book. It's, it's not anything like that. It's understanding providence. It's understanding that there's nothing that's going to happen this week that's outside of God's control. It's understanding that in the next 24 hours or the next 24 days, there is nothing that God is not all over, that he, he doesn't see coming. No, he knows what's coming. And he's going to be present with you in the middle of that. There's nothing that you could worry about that God doesn't have his fingerprints all over. Because he's a God of providence who works for good in everything that happens. So instead of carrying the burden of worry, we have this opportunity to let go of it and give it to Jesus. You see, providence is one of the best things that we can read about in the Bible. And Esther 1 and 2, again, it doesn't have any verses, but it tells us something beautiful about how the living God works. And when we get this, it helps us understand His presence. He might be hidden, but He's not absent. It helps us understand our purpose in the big and small, and it helps us understand a deep peace. We can let go of the burdens that we're carrying when we worry. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the gift of providence. We thank you, God, that you are a God who is working with purposeful intent in everything that happens. God, sometimes it's really hard to see this truth. But we pray, Father, for the grace to see this truth. We pray that this would transform us and the impact around us. Father, lift our eyes to see that the moments ahead of us this week don't happen by accident. That there's some things that are going to happen this week that we feel like maybe we're unlucky or that, that just happened by chance. But God, help us see that you are working in the middle of that. And give us the grace to be present in those things and to see your work in those things and to be the people that you've called us to in the middle of that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.